This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Let's call a spade a bloody shovel. New Zealand is falling behind in combating fraudsters, Maria Slade writes in this week's Flipside column. Well, Maria, you've written about this issue before, but what's reignited your interest in it? It was a case that was reported in the New Zealand Herald at the weekend. Uh, A lady called Carla O'Neill, who is a professional real estate agent, a very savvy person. She was looking for opportunities for term deposits. She managed to find this one online with Citibank, a very well-known brand, was offering seven and a bit percent, which is a good, you know, rate in the current environment. She checked it out as thoroughly as she could. She even online stalked the, the Citibank guy that was selling it to her, and it turns out it was a scam. He was even impersonating an actual Citibank employee. He'd sent her this fancy portal that was all Citibank branded. So it was just scary how sophisticated this hoax was. You know, she's not a stupid person. She had done her due diligence and still she was duped. And she's speaking out because, you know, she says, if it could happen to me, it could happen to others. And, you know, that's just a real worry that these scams are getting so sophisticated. This woman did everything that you'd probably expect of someone before they make an investment decision, and yet they still got caught out. So sort of begs the question, what can be done to sort of combat this sort of crime? Well, it's not like the regulators do nothing. The FMA had warned about this scam about six months ago. But unless you're sort of trawling the FMA website for fun kind of thing, you know, why would you spot that? Mm. And yes, the returns were a little bit outsized, but not that outsized, Mm. you know, Uh, so a bit of a red flag there. So, look, it just strikes me that the measures we do currently have in place are just a bit tame and that, um, you know, we need to gear it up, really, uh, to try and combat this increasing problem. Are there overseas examples New Zealand could be looking to where those countries are doing it better? That's another thing that got me really interested in this. The Australians seem to be moving ahead in leaps and bounds. There was an announcement in their budget just last week of some 80 plus million that's going towards a centralised scam agency. So this is a, it's not a new agency as such, but it will um, combine all the efforts, shall we say, of the regulators like ASIC and the ACCC, but also get industry involved, all the telcos, the digital platforms, the financial services providers, into joining four to share data on these scams, but also to develop messaging. And I think that's one of the things that's really missing here in New Zealand. I mean, we do have, you know, FMA warnings, but they're in real legalese. They're not in an easily accessible kind of, you know, platform. Mm. Uh, the, The Australians are really stepping this up. And the other thing that's happening over there, which is not happening here, is the industry itself has got together. The banks have formed a cyber crime group that they are funding and running to fight cyber crime. And as part of that, they've launched a platform uh, which will enable um, connections between them to pick up scam transfers much more quickly. Mm. They've tested it and they believe that it can cut the time down in half uh, for picking up when money is being transferred from one bank to another in a fraudulent uh, our banks, even though so many of them are Aussie-owned, are not part of this. Mm. You, you spoke to some sort of local people here in your story. What do they have to say about this? I spoke to the banking ombudsman about it, and she's politic in the way she talks about it. Uh, her words were that with you know all these efforts in Australia and the UK, actually, have done some pretty um, innovative things as well. It is timely for New Zealand to be looking
looking at the way we are approaching this, I'd put it a whole lot more bluntly and say we are falling worryingly behind. We have the knowledge base, we have the regulators, we have very profitable financial services uh, and digital sector. Why can we not harness that and pull it together in a manner such as the Australians and uh, start sharing data and coalescing a lot more efficiently to try and um, head off some of these scams at the pass? Do you think we have to wait to see more people lose money before we actually see more action on this? I certainly hope not, but it's not looking good at the moment. I spoke to the Digital Minister's Office uh, when I wrote about this in in the previous piece I did a couple of months ago, and the answer from them is, nope, nothing to see here, status quo is fine, we have suit New Zealand, the cybercrime body, it's doing its job, Um, you know, we're all good. Thank you for your time, Marie. Fingers crossed we might see some action sometime soon. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Can a chief executive, and not any old chief executive, but the boss of the team's major sponsor, be just another everyday diehard fan? Martin Devlin asked this question in this week's column. Well... Martin, this all has to do with this Twitter fracas between Jason Paris and the NRL refs. Set the scene for us. What happened? Yeah, hi, Nicholas. Look, it all kicked off uh, two games ago, and that was the magic round in Brisbane, where all the teams play across one weekend, Warriors versus Penrith. Um, and Jason Paris, CEO of Vodafone slash One New Zealand, and um, there are many who've suggested that perhaps that um, the resulting publicity around this is actually very good for the rebranding of that business. Look, I'll get into that a little bit later on. But essentially what happened, Jason, I think, did what most Warriors fans who were watching that night did, got in front of the TV, bought himself a couple of drinks, and as perceived injustices from the referees started piling up, he vented on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people do do this, but as you say, he's not just any old fan. He was pretty full on, to be honest. You know, he used words like cheating. Um, he kind of alluded to the fact of, well, are the refs on the take? Look, it's just kind of the same kind of banter that most fans would have had, but he's just not any old fan, is he? No, no, not quite. Look, do you think as a, as the major sponsor, he needs to kind of sort of censor himself in this regard, kind of keep his sort of his views to himself? Well, I've got kind of two different ways of looking at it as far as the column is concerned. I mean, you have it from a fan's perspective and you have it from the NRL's perspective. I mean, I think for most fans, you know, what he did was a big nothing, really. I mean, if I'd done it, if you had done it, um, there would have been no news story and no overall reaction to it. Because it's him, there was an overall reaction to it. And I think that that's probably the best thing that's happened out of this. It brought it up for discussion. Again, it's not the first time that it's happened and not the first time anyone's ever suggested that, hey, there might be some kind of subconscious slash unconscious bias against the Warriors. And I actually believe, to be honest, part of that to be true. Mm. I don't know whether it's just against the Warriors, but there's a comment made by a guy on one of the NRL 360 programs last week, and I think he got it right. He said that, look, the 50-50 calls go 60-40 to weigh the better the way of the better teams. Mm. That is unconscious bias, doesn't it? Mm. You know, it's like when Richie McCaw's coaching the uh, playing uh, captain for the All Blacks, um, you know, the All Blacks, you know, don't concede as many penalties as they might do on another day. The referees look at him, oh, it's Richie McCaw. Do they have something going on in their head that says, hey, because it's Richie McCaw, he's probably less likely to infringe because I don't know. But Mm. I think that these are kind of conditional, they're societal, they they do seep into your conscious. And and I I 
think that that's what happens to a lot of the teams who aren't winning a lot. Yeah, look, I'm a big follower of NBA basketball, and there's a general sort of uh, assumption that, well, gen- genuine sort of accepted reality that the best players get the most favourable calls. Right. So, uh, James <laughs> Harden has travelled his whole life. I watched Steph Curry the other day basically pick the ball up, walk over with it, and hand it to somebody who <laughs> didn't get called. And so, yeah, I think there is some of that. You know, mm. the key here is about who's allowed to say what. Right. And the, there's kind of an undefined set of rules when it comes to the NRL. Players and coaches can't hack the referees because you get a $10,000 fine. And immediately after that game, Andrew Webster, the coach of the Warriors, as frustrated as he was, you know, he kind of joked with the media about that. I'm not going to say anything unless you guys chip in, pass the hat around and pay my fine. Mm. Um, as far as people like myself go on my side of the microphone, uh, for every other fan, we're allowed to mouth off if and how we please. Mm. Um, I mean, there are limits, obviously, of course. No one likes, you know, personal abuse and things. As far as the sponsors go, the sponsors mean to stick to the sausage trolls, you know, the corporate lounge and write the checks. Mm. And so that this erupted because of who was saying it as opposed to I believe what was said well look Jason Paris's comments were enough to warrant a response from the uh, NRL's chief executive they shot back you know what was that response and what can we sort of take away from it I mean, the response was exactly what you'd expect. I mean, you know, they're going to go into bat for their guys, aren't they? Um, Mm. And so, you know, I think that, you know, this is a trickle which could become a creek, which could become a river. And I think that the NRL, both the referees and the NRL itself, wanted to sort of plug that hole pretty quickly. The last thing that they want or need is their paymasters, who are those that sponsor the teams and the television companies that, you know, pay for the broadcast rights, those guys to start actually questioning things. And so... You know, I think for them, that's why they reacted so quickly. Look, you know, if this was every other CEO of a major sponsor of a team doing the same, it wouldn't again, wouldn't have had the same reaction. But what Jason Paris did was pretty much roguish, rogue mm. behaviour from a major sponsor. You sort of alluded to this, but do you think there might be a little bit more to just uh, calling out refs here? Well, you know, I think the question you're asking is, um, was there anything contrived about this? You know, is it pre-planned from Jason Paris? Jason's a smart guy, obviously. I mean, he, mm. he's the CEO of One New Zealand. Um, I think his initial reactions were genuine, absolutely. The subsequent couple of days of media, I can't see how he would have done any of that entirely off his own bat without there being input from other people in his company. I don't know whether it would have gone board level or whatever, but I would have presumed that good brains would have sat around and gone, okay, how do we play this? Is there a damage control element that we need to do? What's the essential message that we want to get out? And, you know, because he did, you know, so much media, he came in and, you know, did an interview with him, good on with me, good on him. And, um, you know, I think that there's an element there that there is a bit more control to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's thing you know I wouldn't I mean I think you know anyone who actually says oh this was some kind of stunt to promote the rebranding of the companies as wacko as some of the calls that went against the Warriors to be honest but as I say he's a smart guy and I think he 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 certainly would have had other advice subsequent how's he been received by the fans on this well I think you know I think you know a lot of fans probably think he's a bit of an anti-hero actually um you know because you know, do fans, does the common man in the street relate to somebody who's the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company? Ask yourself that question. Mm. But when it comes to sitting there on a couch yelling at a TV for your team, that's the equaliser. And we are all equal from that point of view. My final point was some are probably a little more equal than others. And that the answer to, you know, the original question is, can a CEO like him in his position be a fan? Yes, can he behave like a fan? I think the answer is that he won't be doing it again. I think it's probably a good place to leave it. Look, thank you for your time, Martin. Really appreciate it.
In this week's Teohunga Māori column, Holly Bennett takes aim at the service providers masquerading as Pākehi, that is, businesses. Well, thanks for joining us, Holly. Why don't you start off by giving us a bit of a rundown about why you're turning your attention to this particular topic? I think it's extremely important as we encourage more Māori to get into entrepreneurialism and we're trying to grow the way in which traditionally underserved communities in this space put themselves forward that we actually talk about the realities of business and we see an increasing number of service providers, that is people who are paid to do things on behalf of the government, being lauded as successful Māori businesses or Pākehi Māori and it's something which I think creates an interesting state of affairs for entrepreneurialism because I perceive entrepreneurialism to be the cut and thrust of the private sector, that Mm -hmm. is you survive if you're good and you thrive if you're excellent. Are there any particular examples you can sort of point to that sort of maybe make you raise your eyebrows when you sort of see this take place? The most obvious one was the recent announcement by Fariki on their partnership with the Final Order Commissioning Agency and it stuck out to me because it spoke specifically of growing Māori entrepreneurialism and that is a provider of final order, which is government-funded programming, and that means that their funding lines come from the government, which means it's essentially we're encouraging the entrepreneurialism story by people who are essentially paid for by the taxpayer. What is the big issue, though, here with service service providers masquerading as, as businesses, as you talk about in the column? Is it one of perception? Is it, is it one of around, you know, you're know, looking for multi businesses to be able to be able to sort of stand on their own two feet. Like, you know, take me take me to what the what you think is the big issue here. The big issue, the fundamental issue, is if your government funding disappears, does your Pākehi stay? If your government funding disappears and your Pākehi doesn't stay, that means all those kaimahi are out of jobs. That to me is what we need to be focusing in on because if we're encouraging entrepreneurs to make businesses that are reliant on government funding, they're not going to be very good businesses if their funding gets cut. So look, you say this is what we should be focusing on. What does that sort of look like in your opinion then? It means celebrating those who exist on their own two feet, who Mm -hmm. exist within the private sector. They're creating uh, for whatever reason, whatever their sector needs, something that's unique, innovative. They're creating an opportunity that others are not tapping into. And there's many businesses that are doing that you see uh, them coming up every every so every month or so I see new businesses entering different markets that we have never seen before Pākehi Māori with a a young person at the helm being like yeah I can do this a bit better than everyone else Mm. that's what we need to be looking at not service providers who are harping on that they're the be all and end all for business when I look at their numbers it's Mm. a line in the budget you know, why don't you think we hear about these amazing stories that you refer to? Is it a problem in communications? Is it one of those things where, you know, we often hear about, uh, you know, newsrooms I've worked in before, the importance of having sort of diversity in the newsroom because, you know, you might be engaged with communities that typically be underrepresented. Is yep. it is it a is it an issue with maybe, you know, these people don't have contacts or PR contacts to connect them without sort of telling their story in a much bigger level? I've sort of done a lot of talking, you know, that's just me theorising, but yeah. what's your take on that? I think that 
exactly what you've said and then some. Mm. Lots of the time they're doing the doing. They're not going to be focused on the PR. They're not mm. going to be focused about sharing their story. It's really scary putting your head up over the parapet and saying like, hey, like I'm here, I'm doing this. Um, also, what about that fear of it failing? And if it does fail and they've put themselves out somewhere in comms, media, saying that we're doing this and we're doing this great thing and then they don't succeed, there could be that element of whakama, of shame, or no, I haven't. Uh, succeeded I haven't done that but for me the kind of thing that we need to focus on is these people taking that risk and then Mm. really getting in behind them not those that have got a self-inflated sense uh, a sense of self-inflated importance because their wages are paid by the taxpayer look Holly I think that's a great place to leave it thank you for your time Kilda NVR are offering a free trial to newcomers See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The latest polls have Labour ahead of National and they're just about to release billions of spending in Thursday's budget. Duncan, you ask in your latest column, where is Christopher Luxon? Um, he's probably in Auckland today, maybe Wellington tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, I think he's, he struggles for presence. He struggles for cut-through, he struggles with female voters and he struggles for trust. Um, he's not doing a bad job. He's just not doing an astonishing job when you'd think Labour, after their five years, at times woeful incompetence, you would think that Luxon, as a as a ex-CEO, you know, successful manager, would be able to come in there and liven up that caucus. Where's the policy? Where's the creative policy? What, what, are the, what If you vote national, what are you voting for? I can't, I can't, I cannot name, I can name one, I can name the tax policy, which is uh, underwhelming, the threshold movement. That's it. They don't even bring the top rate of tax down, so I don't know. I'm 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 under I'm underwhelmed by all the offerings at the moment. The budget will be interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think an effective opposition leader would be doing in these circumstances? Pointing out how much they're spending, pointing out how much of it um, hasn't been spent wisely, pointing out the outcomes. They don't have this, this government. First thing they did in office was to um, um, get rid of the. Um, uh, targets. National had targets recommended in um, public policy settings and targets. These guys got rid of them. So what are you getting for your $128 billion a year? It was $86 billion a few years back. This is the spend. It's a huge jump. So what are we getting for? Are we getting better public services? Are we getting more public services? Are we getting efficient public services? Are we getting better health and education systems? I'd have to argue no. The whole, the whole thing looks broken. Yet we're spending tens of billions of dollars more than we did in 2019. Now, you reckon that National should roll out three or four hotshot policies to mm. woo voters with. What are the priorities? What should they do? Oh, well, they, take, they keep well, on their website and on their policy settings. They've got cost of living as their first one, but there's nothing detailed in there. So they talk about cost of living policy, but nothing in the policy suggests that the cost of living will come down. Um, so they want to look at cost of living. Uh, they need to look at housing. Need to talk about housing and uh, look. It's all about the economy and health, actually, in the health sector. Uh, New Zealanders are going without operations. They're being sent into the private sector. They're being told to wait. And if you've got a record spend in health, why should you be waiting? And why should you be um, pushed away? So health um, and the spend across the public service and also, of course, housing. Yeah. But cost of living. What do they, what do, they do? I mean, this government's going to give out some kind of. I would have thought, um, probably one off, but it'll be a it'll be a, a cost of living payment. And you can see they've, they've freed up that $4 billion, so a billion for this year, plus the $4 billion they're going to spend anyway. So you're looking at $5.5 billion of new spend. Um, now, that's about the 
that's about the price of a really, really expensive cost of living payment. I think they'll go the whole hog with it. And that's what, see, they've cleared the decks. All these pre-budget um, announcements have cleared the decks for the focus to be on. Labour tonight announces a massive big cost of living. You watch it. It's the bribe. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of all these pre-budget announcements we've had over the last week, like the almost $1 billion to Cyclone rebuild for the infrastructure? Mm, so they should. I mean, I would have. Is that even in the budget? Is it? I, mean, I would have thought that maybe that's the sort of thing that would have been announced quite some time ago. Uh, they've been doing this for a number of years now. Both governments do this. Um, this practice of you know the, the pre-announcement. They don't want anything in the budget out there. But if it's up to, but if they're going to control it, then it's out there. It's all about um, getting some coverage for those particular stories and those particular issues, so it clears the decks for the big one on the day, so it doesn't get confused with what else is around it. That's why I think the cost of living is the last remaining um, policy to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a, a big day on Thursday, I think, for political reporters. Huge, and of course the NBA will have full coverage. We will, absolutely. Nicely said. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much for your time, Duncan. Okay, you're welcome. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.